0: Welcome, everyone, back to the NIU Social Justice Summer Camp for Educators, the podcast series. I'm Mike Mandarino, a graduate faculty scholar at NIU and one of the camp co-directors. And both James and I are so excited to have with us our co-director, our good friend, and the person who really just conceptualized the idea of having this camp and bring educators together to, to really interrogate issues around social justice for education and that is Dr. Joseph Flynn.
1: I also want to uh, take this opportunity, this is James Cohen, uh, Associate Professor of ESL Bilingual Education. I wanna take this opportunity to, to say hello and welcome the listeners to this podcast. It is my delight to introduce Dr. Joseph Flynn. Dr. Flynn is the Associate Director for Academic Affairs for the Center for Black Studies and an Associate Professor of Curriculum Instruction at Northern Illinois University. His teaching and scholarship focus on the intersection of multicultural and social justice education, whiteness studies, media and popular culture, and curriculum. In addition to his professional development work with regional schools and colleges in Northern Illinois, Dr. Flynn has published scholarship related to the aforementioned topics, and he co-edited the book Rubric Nation, critical inquiries on the impact of rubrics in education from Information Age Publishing in 2015. More recently, Dr. Flynn founded the three day social justice summer camp for educators at Northern Illinois University. Additionally, Dr. Flynn serves as an editorialist on Perspectives, a radio program on WNIJ, an NPR affiliate, and as a co host for the podcast Mental Illness in Popular Culture. He is also a past president of the American Association for Teaching and Curriculum. Most recently, Dr. Flynn published White Fatigue, Rethinking Resistance for Social Justice, published by Peter Lang, or with Peter Lang in 2018. A book that considers the critical question of why is it challenge to teach white students about race? The book has been awarded the O.L. Davis Jr. Outstanding Book Award from the American Association for Teaching and Curriculum Studies. Joe, how are you?
2: I'm well, man, how's it going?
1: Great, great.
2: Glad so, to be here.
1: Yeah, well, we're really happy for you to be here. Could you just start off this, this interview, and, and actually I'm, I'm hoping that'll be uh, more of a conversation than a straight interview. Uh, that's typically how the three of us work anyway. So can you just, in addition to what I've already done with the introduction, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Uh, Yeah, thanks. I think that if anyone knows me, they know that one of the things that I thrive on is uh, exploring media and popular culture. I've taught several classes that use media and popular culture in critical ways, including a course I teach on hip-hop called The Social Philosophy of Hip-Hop here at Northern as well as courses around curriculum, um, particularly uh, curriculum history, also educational change as a practice, uh, along with uh, the theory uh, behind educational change. I've taught many courses on uh, multicultural education and social justice education uh, in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction, as well as in the Foundations of Education Department. I try to always use media and popular culture as ways of allowing people to to see or experience something that becomes a common example for students in classes. It's it's always interesting, you know, we bring up issues and and subjects, and students have a tendency of only looking at things through the, the lens of their own personal experiences. And so media uh, and popular culture become really interesting because you can have everybody watch a particular text and you can inter- interrogate that text and, and examine how a specific text might engage issues of race, class, gender, sexuality, et cetera. And so I've always really thrived around um, looking at film, television, uh, and definitely music as ways of helping us learn uh, to understand the world that we live in. And, you know, I, I think that that definitely veers and, and helps me really understand how we think about race.
0: So, Joe, I mean, you know, a lot of the work that, that I've, I've, I've seen you publish and produce, and, and when we've been together, you know, much of that is specifically centered around race. So how did you start beginning studying that? in in a more systematic way, and how did you start applying that to your role as a professor of education?
2: You know, it's funny, because, um, you know, I can't remember a time when I didn't study race, or at least wasn't curious about it, you know. When I was little, as in uh, in grade school, you know, in K, uh, K through eight, family members of mine, like my sister, my aunts, my uncles, Um, they always shared resources with me, you know, encouraged me to read about this person or that person. And, and it really kind of got me questioning even way back when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, this notion that um, a lot of black culture and black history is not taught uh, in, in our traditional curriculum. So, learning about race for me in a more systematic way began back then. And that included, you know, looking up stuff in encyclopedias to beginning to read uh, full text. And this really blew up by the time I got to college. And when I was a freshman, sophomore and in, in, um, undergrad, that's when I really began to look back at really classic text, like soul on ice um, or, blues people or uh, Soledad brother, as well as really reading uh, the work of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and reading Malcolm X, um, not only the autobiography, but also his speeches, et cetera. And you know, getting more of an understanding of the scope and history of, of black culture and black history. I think in terms of when did it become a professional pursuit as a, when, I be, when I decided to become a teacher near the end of my undergraduate years, I, my major was in philosophy, and the question for me as I was graduating was, you know, are there are no jobs for the village idiot, so I should probably find another skill, <laughs> another endorsement, so to speak, so that I can go and get a job, and, um, and that's kind of how I found myself in education and teaching, and I started out as a high school English teacher. And when I started, my, my primary goal was to use the curriculum and my classroom as a space to really encourage uh, a deeper dive into Black history and Black culture. And that, you know, worked to varying degrees of success and failure. You know, the, the first year teacher blues definitely settled in. And it really helped me understand that there was a lot about teaching that I just didn't know. And there was a lot about race that I didn't know as well. And that kind of set me off on this trajectory to understand that intersection a lot more deeply. And, you know, it's, it's something that I learn more and more about every day.
0: Uh, you, you also specifically talk about studying whiteness. So can you, can you talk a little bit about about that, um, what, what led you to focus specifically on whiteness
2: then? Um, to be completely honest, I was working on my dissertation. Uh, I was preparing that work, and I, I was going to start looking at how we could use film in professional development to help teachers understand uh, race, and I was focusing all on the representation of African Americans. But the site where I was doing my dissertation work, they had had a group of students. um, The the school had an all-white teaching faculty and in a a pretty well-diverse student body. And black students in the school began to lodge complaint openly about um, the lack of representation um, of African-American teachers in the school and what we would probably now call microaggressions that were happening pretty regularly. And so as I was preparing my dissertation materials and, you know, reading all this really interesting uh, literature around the representation of African-Americans in film, I started to question is like, you know, a lot of this stuff I've heard before repeatedly over the years, but I'm wondering what about the representation of white folks, the representations of whiteness? And it kind of got me on that uh, trajectory of saying, you know, we can always talk about wanting to understand race more, but if you don't understand your own racial positioning, then how can you understand that of others? So I wanted to begin to look more at whiteness and what whiteness was and how whiteness is represented and help teachers explore that to understand how to identify their own positionality before trying to mess around with other people's positionality. And so, and that's where um, my fascination with whiteness really began to sprout as an academic endeavor.
1: So, Joe, you have introduced the concept of whiteness, or the, your interest in the concept of whiteness. Can you uh, explicate a little bit more, describe what exactly is whiteness, and by extension, what is whiteness studies?
2: Well, let me start backwards. Um, whiteness studies is the interdisciplinary study of this phenomenon that we call whiteness. And we draw on um, a broad range of, of disciplines to explore this. Psychology, um, philosophy, economics, history, et- sociology, etc. To understand what is white, where did whiteness come from, how has whiteness shaped our social, political, economic, cultural institutions and on American life in general? And I focus more on whiteness in the United States. Um, you can definitely see whiteness represented across the planet, but I personally just focus more on what's happening here in the United States. you know, following that edict, my mom always told me you got to clean up your backyard before you start doing stuff in other people's yards. Right. And so whiteness is, is defined as an epistemology, a way of in which folks see the world a, a way, a ways in which folks build and understand knowledge. And you can see whiteness, an example of whiteness is, you know, a, a privileging of, written communication over oral communication. So, for example, many uh, indigenous cultures as well as many African cultures were more orally-based societies. Um, You know, kind of thinking about hip-hop and the tradition of the griot or the storyteller that comes right out of African cultures kind of implanted or, you know, migrated um, into uh, what would eventually become hip-hop many, many centuries later. So thinking about how particular aspects or dispositions or ways of seeing the world as being birthed through whiteness and being promoted through whiteness. So um, a reliance on the, the king's English, so to speak, as being the standard for language or different edicts like, you know, the Protestant ethic and this notion of if you work hard, you succeed. And this notion of the individual over the community or the nuclear family, as defined by American research, tends to situate what family means, as opposed to other equally legitimate um, structures of family. So, you know, when we think about whiteness, we can think about it in terms of these attitudes and beliefs and dispositions and values that collectively serve as as the shaping of our current status quo. You know, so what aspects of of our society that get privileged, so to speak? You know, and and there, and in those spaces is where you can find what whiteness looks like on you know on a day to day practical basis. Because I mean, we, I mean, being a being a black man, and um, having grown up in the United States, having spent Pretty much all of my life or in white spaces and being able to migrate between predominantly white spaces and predominantly black spaces, you can definitely tell that in white spaces, there are expectations of behavior that you are supposed to live up to. So one of the things when I was younger that always kind of like keyed off whiteness or recognizing that there are differences in the ways in which we engage the world, people would you know, make fun of my voice. Uh, My speaking voice. And I wish I had a dollar for every time when I was little that I would meet someone over the phone and then they'd see me in person and they'd say either, oh, well, you talk like a white boy, or your English is really good, you know, depending on who's speaking. And I could tell that, you know, because of the cadence of my voice, certain assumptions were thrown onto me, particularly. I sound white, you know, and what does that mean? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? How does that play out in different contexts? So studying whiteness, I think, is, is an interesting question when you're asking an African-American that. Because the fact of the matter is, is that if you're black, you're, you're studying whiteness your entire life.
0: So, I mean, knowing that those challenges exist, how, how do you deal with those challenges as a black man studying whiteness, you know, as, as a scholarly pursuit? It's, it's, it's
2: hard sometimes. Um, I mean, being completely personal about it, it was easy to say that, yeah, I'm a multicultural educator and I focus on race, particularly the experiences of African Americans, you know, that was kind of expected. But when I first started saying that I study whiteness, I mean, it was question marks and, and scribble marks over people's heads. It's like, what is that? You know, and these are two predominantly white audiences of people. And, you know, not only, you know, defining what whiteness studies is and defining what whiteness is, but what I had to say, I always felt like I had to make sure that I performed a certain way. So as to not alienate people, to make them feel more comfortable, to make them feel like I don't really have an agenda, that I, I do fundamentally feel that this is some really fascinating um, ideas that have gone in, in many, many important ways to shape our society. And it's not that I'm mad at anybody, but at times you have to critique this stuff. Right, you to to understand how did we get to where we are right now, you know. You can't understand why people are protesting and marching in the streets, and we have things like Black Lives Matter or defund the police, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't understand this log, this larger history of race and racism, and to understand that, you have to understand the history of whiteness, because they all kind of rest uh, hand in hand, and so when I'm up there either writing or giving workshops or, or lectures, I am aware of the fact that there are people in the audience who probably don't want to listen to me simply because I'm black. And they feel like if I have anything critical to say about white folks or whiteness, then I'm somehow grinding my ax without recognizing that I'm, I'm not, doing this simply as a finger-wagging exercise, but as a way of helping to unstick our communities on this phenomenon of race. I mean, we're going to have to deal with it in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, it's funny because last night uh, I was watching John Oliver's show on HBO and he did a segment on U.S. history, which he ultimately focused on the fact that we don't talk about white supremacy in U.S. history. It was a really, really fascinating piece, and I strongly suggest to, to everyone to find it and listen to it because it, it's really powerful. But And it was also gratifying because it was like, okay, I've been saying these things for years now, <laughs> and it's great that someone in the in the position of a John Oliver is, is now out there saying this as well. Um, and and I'm not the only one to ever say anything like uh, anything critical of whiteness uh, and whiteness studies. uh, There's an army of us, but, you know, when I first learned that the overwhelming percentage of whiteness studies scholars and anti, uh, anti anti-racist educators are white folks, you know, that was an interesting development to me. Right. And, and I think that, you know, when I'm dealing with, with, this, with this work and, and with the resistance toward me that can come from, from folks, I just try to do the best that I can to remember that I'm not saying anything that any given person out there with a library card can find out for themselves. This isn't occulted knowledge. I'm not saying anything that is hard to find out. You just have to be curious enough to go and look for those answers for yourself. And, and, and there's plenty of sources in which to do
1: that. Joe, when you said that when you started researching whiteness studies and you learned that the majority of the people researching whiteness are white themselves, I'm really curious to know how you responded to that fact.
2: I, to be straight up about it, I thought it was cool. <laughs> just, you know, it was like, oh, okay, right on, man. So, so there are people, and, and it's, it's the, thing, the funny thing, James, is that, like, just intuitively to stop and think about it, it makes sense, right? But I, I think the, a part of the way that our racial dialogue uh, plays out in the United States is white people do stuff around white people, black people do stuff around black people. Latinos do stuff around Latinos. Asians do stuff around Asians. And the indigenous do stuff around the indigenous. So it's almost like we just uh, compartmentalize or or balkanize even just intellectual pursuits. I mean, and that's a part of the way that racism works, right? So we're supposed to believe that white folks aren't out there being critical about the history of whiteness and white culture.
1: But there are... I had a student once who told me, "This was at the beginning of the semester in the in the multicultural class," and he said, "Dr. Cohen, you you don't you don't like white people, do you?" And I looked at him, and I, I looked at my, my arm, which is obviously white. I said, "Well, I don't dislike myself. I mean, no, I don't dislike white people. I'm, we're giving a history that is, that is uh, the, the real history." Of what's what has happened in American society. If if someone were to approach you and in in, in a similar light, how do you respond to them? And uh, you know, if if anyone were to say, "Well, you, Dr. Flynn, you don't like," it's clear that you don't like white people because you're giving all of this negative history about white folks. How do you respond to that?
2: Uh, now I tell them to read the introductory chapter to my book. But to (laughs) to not be so cheeky about it, I grew. I grew up. I'm a. I'm a kid from the '80s, right? I was born in 1970, so my my formative years, uh, my teen years, was um, in, in the 1980s. And I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. I went to a predominantly white elementary school, a predominantly white high school, a predominantly white university. I lived in residence halls that were predominantly white and all the way through my doctoral program. So my whole life, I've been surrounded by white folks. And and one of the things that I talk about in my book is I met a lot of really, really cool white kids. I met white kids that were racist to the core that had no compunction about showing that they didn't necessarily want to be around black folks or at the very least had parents that were that it was really clear they didn't want want black folks around and i grew up around a lot of white folks that saw those kinds of things and were detested by them you know white folks that were there in my defense uh, and supporting me when something ill would happen my closest friends um, were white kids. And, and many of my best friends still to this day are, are white, cat, white cats. And so me personally, I've never really had an ax to grind against white folks. But over time, I also learned that our, our society is structured in such ways that the more you're able to assimilate or, reflect those ways of whiteness, the more opportunity that you have, the easier, quote unquote, it is to navigate society. You know, when I started reading about things like, you know, even having a quote unquote, ethnic sounding name can have um, a negative impact on someone getting a job. So just by having a name like Jamal, and I grew up with Jamals, right? Just by having that name, makes you less likely to get a callback, given the same resume, you know, uh, the same, uh, same merits on a resume. And, and when you learn something like that, you know, I mean, when, you, when, you're, when, you're, when you're not white, you're kind of constantly inundated with all of these messages about how there's something about you that's not quite right, that, that's off. I remember when I was uh, my summer job before I left for college. I was working at a department store in the in the men's shirt section, and this older white gentleman came in, and you know I helped this guy buy like three hundred dollars worth of shirts and ties, and uh, it was a good sale. And as we were check, as I was checking him out, he asked me if I would be interested in working for him at his company because I was a good boy and could be a good role model for the rest of the boys down at the shop. And, you know, at at that moment I, I, it's not that I hadn't ever had an experience like that before so much as that I think I was just at the age where I understood the implications of that more. My response to him was, I'm sorry, I'm leaving for, um, college in in two weeks I, I have no interest in, in doing anything like that and you know and he, and he was cordial about it and I know that he probably didn't necessarily mean to be offensive at least in his mind but and and at that point you know it was like you know I'm at work <laughs> I don't want to like really you know tell him that what he said was an insulting uh, Cause I didn't want to, you know, get put into the situation of having to explain all that to my manager and so on and so forth. And I was leaving in two weeks anyway, but that story always stuck with me because it was like, it told me in that moment that it doesn't matter how you dress. It doesn't matter how you speak. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. Sometimes people are just going to see my skin color and that's all they're going to know. And that's all they want to know. And so, you know, studying these ideas and, and recognizing how race has such a profound impact on who we are and, and how we move through the world, it was just something that I just couldn't turn away from. And, and so if, if anybody asks me, you know, or accuses me of having an ax to grind against white folks, I'm just like, you just don't know who I am. And, but if you sit back and listen for a little bit, maybe you'll understand where I'm coming from and what my personal motive is for engaging these ideas.
1: Joe, it seems that uh, resistance is something that um, you, you mentioned it a few times in your, in the last response. And it seems to be one of the greatest hurdles that folks have to go through. Can you unpack this concept of resistance for us?
2: Yeah, resistance resistance is, you know, rejection. It's working against something. And so when we talk about the phenomenon of white resistance, we're usually just talking about how um, the ways in which white folks can tend to dismiss or avoid conversations, critical conversations about race and how whiteness shapes our cultural, social, political, economic context. And there are, there are many different forms of resistance, and, but the primary two include the idea of white guilt and the idea of white fragility. And I'm sure everybody out there now has, is familiar with the term white fragility, but it's simply this lack of desire to even take up conversations about race, let alone learn about race, right? Guilt, on the other hand, is you know these feelings of pain and and frustration and even anguish when one begins to learn all of this stuff about history that they weren't taught when they were younger, kind of positioning oneself within that story. So you know when you start teaching critically about, say, slavery as an example, a lot of white kids uh, and adults um, can begin to have feelings of guilt. You know, this feeling that, oh, my God, I can't believe that my ancestors did that. That's so terrible. And I, I don't really mind guilt, but the, the downside of guilt, because to me, guilt means that someone is actually, you know, wrestling with what's, what they've learned. They're, they've taken it in, and they're trying to make sense of it. And guilt seems to be kind of a logical response. You know, you feel bad, you know. Um, The problem with guilt, of course, is that sometimes folks can get mired in guilt and not move beyond guilt. And many of us anti-racist and social justice educators will say over and over and over again, we don't get over it. You know, we don't need guilt. We need action. You know, we need understanding. Um, Because, again, guilt, when, when, when you're inundated with guilt, you tend to shut down and kind of isolate yourself, Um, and it, you know, it kind of prevents you from taking that full critical turn that one needs to take in their own racial identity development to understand the full weight and impact of, of these ideas beyond yourself, right? And then there's this quasi form of resistance that I call white fatigue, and fatigue is simply the idea that there are a lot of white folks out there that understand and know that racism is wrong and, and aren't um, objecting to the ideas about, about racism. They just find a lot of frustration in learning about racism because understanding race and racism is infinitely complex. I, I say to people all the time that to underst- in order for us to really adequately teach about racism, we have to pull from a wide array of different disciplines. And the more disciplines you add, the more complexity that's there. And then we start adding all of these, all this theoretical language and then there's complexity there. And when folks are asking questions about race and racism, they often want these really short, tightly packed answers. And it's like, uh, it's not, it's a lot more complicated than that. And you have to be willing to follow that complexity than, you know, just looking for, you know, short sound bites on on the evening news. So with all the the protesting uh, and uprisings that are happening uh, this summer, you know, a lot of people are wondering, well, what can I read? What can I read? And, you know, and that's great. That's important, but it's also important to have a community to discuss that reading with. You have to kick around the ideas. You have to embrace the ideas. And even though reading or watching documentaries is an important and great place to start, I don't necessarily think that that is all that one can do, Um, and it's definitely not all that one can do in terms of trying to fight that fatigue that can happens when learning about race and racism. This, learning this stuff is a lifelong endeavor, which is why at the outset I said that I'm still learning um, every day. And, and that that sense of fatigue can get in the way of that. Um, and I think in, in different ways than say just flat out resistance and rejection of the ideas.
0: So, so let's get more into this, this idea of fatigue. I'm really I'm, I'm wanting to understand it more beyond beyond what I've read from what you wrote. And so I think a big part is that fatigue is predicated on the idea that a white person must first believe that racism is wrong morally, right? You also brought up this summer and, you know, people trying to to, to learn new things. And and so one thing I notice is, you know, now people publicly saying, well, you know, I'm an anti-racist, or they might even put that in their bio, or they're, they're, they're saying they're working Against racism, but then I also think of about James Baldwin a little bit here. And one of my favorite quotes from him is, uh, "I can't believe what you say because I see what you do." So I think I think my question ultimately is, how do you know when someone is truly working toward being anti-racist? That's really addressing that fatigue. Who's going to question James Baldwin, right? I know I'm not
2: because <laughs> he's one of my heroes, but. Baldwin is is spot on, you know, you have to see it in people's actions, you know, and you can tell the students who are just being resistant from the students who are fatigued. Because the students who are fatigued might shut down, but they come back. The students who are fatigued might get quiet halfway through a class, but the next class they come back and they have questions. You know, they you know, start to notice things more and, they, and, they, and they're comfortable with coming to me and asking about them. It's the people who don't simply want a couple of books to read, but want organizations to join. You know, it's the people who want to know about when is that next protest? I want to show up and who are open about saying things like, you know, I, I've just started learning More about this, but I'm I'm really interested. I find this important. And when you see people that are engaging with the literature, who are, you know, trying to further their own knowledge and and who are trying to really um, reach across borders and boundaries to uh, become more understanding of different experiences beyond their own, you know, that's when you can see people who are more fatigued than those who are just resistant. Um, those folks that just either see no problem at all, you know, I don't think that someone who has white fatigue would ever say all lives matter because they already understand that there is this very distinct difference between being black and being white in the United States historically and currently. So, you know, people who are fatigued are a little bit more understanding. They just don't necessarily always... You don't necessarily always see that from the outside. And I think it's important that we start, you know, thinking more critically about how we talk about resistance and by extension, fragility and guilt and fatigue, because one of the most challenging things about conversations with race about white folks is many white folks probably could come along with the conversation, but it's hard to enter a conversation when you feel right out of the gate that you're the bad guy. In the conversation. When you feel like, you know, all of that history and, uh, and all of that derision and all of that violence somehow implicates you directly, it's, it's hard to walk into a conversation like that. And I'm not saying that we should give white folks a pass, not at all. As a matter of fact, I'm of the opinion that until white folks in mass can begin to really appreciate. Um, the weight of history and the, the aspects of history that have been um, almost erased in our, you know, curricula. We have to be able to look at folks and say, hey, here's what happened. And here's how we ought to be thinking about how this has an impact on us. And here now we need to begin to act. We need to begin to change things. And that can only happen through action." But when we don't think about these various forms of resistance, then we're not thinking about different, altern- different strategies for how we bring those folks into the conversation. You know, so I'm not going to, if there's someone that's just flatly resistant, you know, someone who is not too terribly far along in their own racial identity development, I'm not going to talk to that person the same way I would talk to a person who's further along in this process and has already expressed their, their stated, has already stated values of, of, of budding anti-racism. We're gonna have different kinds of conversations. And so being aware of the different kinds of resistance that are out there allows you, as the teacher, the consultant, or, or what have you, um, to gauge how you ought to engage that person, right? and how you ought to uh, embrace or reject their ideas.
1: Because of all the protests lately, and because of the, the murdering of several people like George Floyd and and others, I was, there seems to be a demand of sources or resources right now to learn about racism, to learn about how to respond and understand and conceptualize these incidences within the historical context of the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are regarding what are the essential, what is essential for people to know?
2: That's a great question. I think the first thing that people really, in my opinion, need to know is the birth of whiteness in and of itself. You know, where does this come from? Ibram Kendi's uh, work, uh, Stamped from the Beginning, I think is probably one of the most important books of the 21st century, even beyond how to be an anti-racist. Because what Kendi's doing is he's trying to help us understand how long and deep this history of whiteness really is and and how racist ideas and racist ideologies were shaped over time and the impact that those those beliefs and values had uh, on our society and And of course, this is, this is challenging because even after you inform people about the the birth of whiteness and you know you trace it during, trace its legal history and, and when it was first when the term "white" as a category of people being first introduced in the late 1600s, um, anti-miscegenation laws, um, slave codes, uh, when you start taking people through all that, you still have folks that will you know, project willful ignorance, and, and act like, oh, well, none of that really matters anymore because that was hundreds of years ago. You know? And that move of acting as though you know, these issues don't matter or they, they don't have any reverberating impact, sorry, you know, those folks are not fatigued right? because they're actively you know, trying to reject what's being said. Um, so, when we're having a conversation, for example, about, um, well, when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, and someone says, oh, well, all lives matter, and boo to you for even, you know, trying to put Black lives over white lives. And it's like, no, if you understood the history, you would understand why we're saying Black Lives Matter. So, I can sit in front of someone and talk about forced sterilizations of Black women uh, in the, Early 1900s, and then we can talk about uh, the ravages of slavery and the, and the physical brutality of slavery, and the rape of slavery. And we can talk about, you know, lynchings. Uh, we can talk about mass incarceration. We can talk about the rash of unarmed uh, uh, shootings of unarmed uh, citizens, unarmed African Americans by uh, law enforcement. We can talk about all that, and then the willfully ignorant will still turn around and act like they don't get it, or None of that matters, right? And so even when we try to reconstruct this history for people, there are going to be some that are going to hear it and incorporate it into their schema and, and how they understand um, the world and how they understand their own, their own positionality in the world. Uh, and then there are going to be others that are just not going to listen. And I think we have to spend more time Engaging the people who want to listen than worrying about and hand wringing over the people who don't. Because in those spaces of want, because I don't think that any of this stuff matters if people have to come to it by force. These are all of these issues of social justice and equity uh, and equality. If you don't feel them, then you're never going to really understand or appreciate them.
0: That's a really important point, especially for schools. Then, right? So, schools as a system who are are trying to enact equity initiatives, justice initiatives, diversity, inclusion initiatives, things like that. How do they start to deal with that? How do they? What you know? What approaches would you suggest from the institutional school side? Then, knowing that you need people to to believe in what they're doing, principals.
2: Curriculum directors, deans, department chairs, and -and rank-and-file teachers, especially uh, in social studies and history and English language arts, we have to start really uh, hitting the streets and really pushing changes to not only professional and academic standards, but also pressuring um, changes to the national curriculum. If school officials aren't willing to stand up and say that these things need to happen, then it's still just a collection of special interest groups that are saying that these things need to happen. And it's funny because over the summer, you see many schools have started um, looking at their curricula, looking at their procedures and policies to suss out inequities and, and, and holes, for lack of better terms. But there are still a lot that aren't, even, uh, in, even in our region, uh, uh, you know, Chicagoland and, um, and the surrounding counties. You know, there are a lot of schools when um, the protest uh, in the wake of George Floyd, uh, Maude Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, in the wake of those um, protests, you, you saw a lot of school districts, superintendents, as well as principals, writing letters putting letters up on their website, sending out letters to uh, parents and community members, showing support and understanding for what the protests were about and even uh, explaining what was meant by Black Lives Matter. But then you had a lot of places that didn't. And so the question becomes, what is it that's missing in those spaces that didn't take those steps? And it's like, We're always in this constant cycle of fear around exploring these ideas. And, you know, in in regards to, you know, just to kind of backtrack a little bit to the last question in terms of what's essential for people to know, people need to know that history has already been manipulated. You know, on July 3rd, um, Donald Trump infamously um, criticized critically minded teachers That are were allegedly, you know, teaching students to hate America and all this and all that, and that really rubbed me the wrong way because he was describing what we're trying to do with history as, you know, not being factual, as being highly political, and so on and so forth. It's like, yeah, but we can show you explicitly how you how the way that history has been taught has just taken out so much information to tell a particular kind of story about America. As though there are problems that happened in the 1600s, 1700s, and then we've just had this rapid decline, I mean, this rapid ascent of perfection all along the way. And if you're complaining now, you have no right to, right? And, And we know that that's just not true. We know that's not real at all. You know, whether or not we're talking about Recordings from the Nixon White House or the, George, um, or the uh, Ronald Reagan White House in terms of how to engage race. And we know from the Nixon White House that a part of the reason behind the war on drugs was to isolate the black vote and make it easier for Nixon to win, as well as other Republicans. You know, that, and that's the thing that I always try to stress to people is I'm not making that up. That's not a spin. That's that's not my interpretation of something. That's literally what happened. And so, you know, in addition to understanding the birth of whiteness, we also have to help people understand how whiteness kind of promoted itself. It didn't kind of promote itself, but how whiteness promoted itself across centuries. And so to get back to this question about schools, school officials, uh, and as well as teachers, of course, can be instrumental in this by they need to be the ones to really uh, lobby and, and push for these changes to happen in the curriculum. When a district presents a new history or a new social studies textbook, well, the teachers need to look at that textbook closely and, and critique it. You know, hey, this book is not talking about this. It's not talking about this. It's not talking about this. Why are we using this? Our kids aren't even represented in this textbook. So, why are we using it? Right. And if that gets to the case of, because I know the textbook market is kind of screwy, but if it gets to the case where a textbook has to be chosen, then say, hey, we'll take this, but we also want a counter text. Like, I don't know, Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen, or, you know, People's History of the United States by um, Harold, Howard Zinn other kind of text that can fill in those holes for students so that they understand this larger scope of history and how these uh, identity factors such as whiteness, uh, such as socioeconomic class, had a profound impact on the nature of of our country.
0: So, Joe, you know, especially you're speaking specifically about history and textbooks and things like that, and yet, you know, just today, um, Representative Ford uh, in in Illinois, um, put forth proposed legislation to say we need to stop the teaching of U.S. history in our Illinois public schools because we are getting it so wrong. And so, until we can rewrite and rethink that curriculum, we should interrupt that harm by not teaching that history. And I'm curious, you know, as schools have to think about navigating that, and not as an either or, but is it? continue and, and rewrite it now or is it is it to that point where we should really be thinking about stopping the harm and then you know re- rewriting it um, to be a better curriculum
2: so I have two answers the the first answer to that is conceptually I love the idea you know because we're doing damage you know we if, when we continue to teach half truths incomplete stories or just completely dismiss stories, we are doing our kids a disservice. You know, anytime that you're veering away from truth, you're doing a disservice. On the other hand, there's a certain level of impracticality to it because, you know, you've got kids graduating, excuse me, you've got kids graduating from, co- from high school who will soon be uh, going into college and then the question is like, well, I don't have all my requirements and you know, and those kinds of uh, nuts and bolts kind of issues. But the sentiment, I think, is spot on. Now, short of stopping the teaching of history, I think a full blown state commission to change not only the standards around history, as well as social studies and um, English language arts, and math and science as well, because they're implicated in this too. But I think that there should be uh, these state-level commissions that look at how are we teaching uh, American history? What are we eclipsing? What are the things that we're not focusing on? And how do we incorporate those into the curriculum? I think one of the things that's a problem, especially in the high school level, is, is this basic idea that we're dealing with a pretty antiquated system. And so we end up finding ourselves kind of stuck in this silly game of trying to pack as much history into a single semester or into a single year as we possibly can. And it always ends up that we kind of stop teaching history after basically the Vietnam war as though nothing's happened for 50 years after that. Right. But of course the, the counter argument that teachers have is, well, we don't have time to get all the way to 2010 or 2015. So it's it's, it's impractical for us to do that unless we want to cut off teaching about, you know, the development of the Constitution. And we don't want to do that either. So I'm of the opinion that U.S. history should be a two-year sequence so that teachers have more time and space within a curriculum to explore this broad, re- this broad representation of ideas. I'm personally of the opinion that high school should definitely be reformed from the ground up anyway, because I don't think that it's responsive to the needs of most people, especially people of color and, and um, folks from
0: low-income communities. So I wanna add one more thing to that then, because how do you think about, you know, I'm a, if I'm a teacher in this system now, what are some words of advice that, that you would have for me specifically at the classroom level, then knowing I may be in the system. And yet it's one that I'm trying to interrupt. Supplemental
2: sources. If you have a pretty solid curriculum, one of my mentors, uh, back in graduate school used to tell me, it's not what you read. It's what you question. So you can take any piece of literature or any piece of writing. And that writing might be the most middle of the road, um, uh, piece of uh, scholarship on race that you could possibly think of, you know. But you can add a supplemental text, you know, something short. It doesn't have to be, you know, James Baldwin's Nobody Knows My Name. It can be just a short, well-written, well-thought-out piece that you find um, from a blog or um, some kind of uh, publication online, like Teaching Tolerance or whatnot. And you can use that supplemental text as a counterpoint to the textbook and begin to ask those critical questions. What's being represented here that's not being represented there? And, you know, in this first text, what are the implications of not having this other information? You know, if you only had this first body of information, how do you think that that would affect the way that you think about the world? And now that you have this other piece of information, how does that change the way you see that? You know, you have to give kids choices. You have to give them, you have to give students a more accurate picture of things because kids know when you're lying and they know when they know when you're just making it up and they know when you care about it. You know, kids can, kids are perspicacious as a good friend of mine says. You know, and I think that that's a really important phenomenon. So for teachers, it really does come down to what are you willing to do and what are you willing to bring in? And and when we're talking about race and racism, what is it that you don't know? Right. And are you vulnerable enough and strong enough to be able to say, you know, I don't really understand how this aspect of race or racism works? I need help. I need support for this. And I don't think that this is just a matter of a couple of, you know, day long professional development seminars. You know, I, I don't think it's simply that professional development seminars can work, can be, can be important and, and useful, but this is sustained conversation. This is, you know, a lifelong endeavor. And, and I think it's important that we're at this point in our history where we can't continue to squander these moments because this particular moment has been peaceful, right? You know, but that's not always promised. Before we leave, though, I I do want to talk a little bit about the notion of allyship. Because ally, you know, ally, I think, is probably the word of, of the year. And I think people need to be really careful about allyship. Just because you pick up a, just because you go and read uh, How to Be an Anti Racist and White Fragility and The New Jim Crow and you watch 13th on Netflix, that does not in and of itself make you an ally. That's a part of, of learning that you need to do to be an ally. But more importantly, I don't believe that allyship is the end all to be all of white folks' role in anti racism. I, I firmly believe that we need accomplices. We need people that understand that the system of racial oppression that has been in operation in the United States since the 1600s has had a profound impact on all of us. And when we realize that, that's when we become accomplices. You know, racial oppression or laws and policies that have um, either the intended or unintended impact of marginalizing non-white folks has a negative impact on white folks as well. And when we begin to understand that we're all living in a system that cannot sustain, then we're fighting together. And it's that togetherness that's important. Allies have the luxury, or to use that dreaded P word, the privilege of sitting on the sidelines. We don't need people to sit on the sideline. I don't need cheerleaders. I need somebody who's going to get in that game with me and get dirty and fight. You know, and, and I think that people who want to be allies, that's great. But now once you become an ally, you need to take that next step and learn how to be an accomplice. And, and always remember that, again, this is not simply checking off items on a checklist. This is about your consciousness and the ways in which you see and engage the world, see and engage the world.
1: Thanks. So Joe, uh, I would like to say thank you for enlightening us. Like always I can, uh, whenever I listen, hear you on the perspectives on NPR in the morning, I'm like, gosh, it's great to wake up to Joe's voice in the morning. Thank you for that.
2: I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs>
0: And Joe, I want to just echo James' sentiment and really say, you know, to our listeners and, and those, like, I can't think of a more consequential topic that we, we need to address in, in our classrooms, in our schools, in our systems, in our boards of education across the board to overcome that fatigue and to, to really interrupt and, and deal head on with the, the, the racist structures that are there and how do we move toward being more anti-racist. So I just, I can't think
1: for sharing that. So well thank you very much, Jim. We sincerely appreciate it.